As Tom previously stated, uh, last week we celebrated Easter, and we celebrated the culmination, the fulfillment, and the true Passover, that Jesus was the lamb that was slain. He was the lamb that shed his blood for us, and his blood is, is placed over our doorposts. It's placed over us, and so that when death and judgment sweeps through, it passes over us because of his sacrifice. And so this morning, I want to look at what our response is to that. What is our response to this enormous day in the Christian world that is Easter? What is our response to this revelation that God has given us, that Jesus has come, he has lived the perfect life, he has sacrificed himself for our sins, and he has risen to guarantee us victory and to give us resurrection? And so what is our response to that? We're all people of response. We respond differently to different things, some positive, some negative. For instance, with me, if you want to see a positive response out of me, just give me cake. I love cake. I eat all types of cake, especially Publix brand carrot cake. I can eat a whole thing in an hour. No problem. Even if I just ate a full meal. I love cake. Now, if you want to be on my bad side and you want to see a negative response from me, just tell me you're going to take me to the mall and you want me to be there for more than 10 minutes. That will automatically give a negative response from me. This is a true story. About six months ago, I had to go to the mall and I had to get three presents, one from my sister, one from my mom, and one from my grandmother. And this is a world record. I think it's in Guinness Book. I got out of the car. I walked up the escalator. I only go up one escalator. I've only been up one escalator in the Galleria Mall my whole life. Walked up, first door that I saw that has girl stuff. I went in, purchased three things, walked back out, got in my car, 10 minutes. <laughs> Can't stay longer than that. Because the mall's a trap. It really is. I don't understand being a mall rat. I don't understand going there and trying things on for five hours, never buying anything. You know, I'm one of the people that sits in that awkward square in the, mer- in the middle where we stare at each other and none of us want to be there. And it's really awkward. And whenever you walk to different stores, you know, you smell the lotion stand, you look over, and the guy wants to put stuff on your hands, and I'm like, no, I don't want it. And then I end up buying an $8 pretzel just to calm me down a little bit. (laughs) So the mall automatically gives me a negative response. Positive response is cake. So remember that. But this morning, I want to look at our response, as I said, to God. And the question is, what is our response? Is our response positive, or is our response somewhat negative in the sense that sometimes certain areas of God and certain areas that he calls us to be and how he calls us to live, we don't want to spend more than 10 minutes in it because it makes us break out an anxiety attack or cold sweats. And so I want us to wrestle through that this morning after we just celebrated Easter a week ago. What is our response to God and his revelation of who he is decisively in Jesus? And so we're going to be looking this morning at Exodus 32. We're going to be looking at the Israelites and Moses to kind of help us answer this question. And the, and the question is, who are you like? What is your response? What is your faith most like? The response of Moses or the response of the Israelites? Because they just experienced the first Passover, this incredible rescue from, from Egypt, from slavery for 430 years. And Moses is leading them out, and then God parts the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. And it's this amazing thing. They're in the, now they're in the wilderness, and God brings bread from heaven. And he brings water from rocks. And then God comes to Moses, and he starts to tell him these commandments of how the people are to live, who he is, and how he wants his people, his children, his nation to live. And he says this, and Moses comes down to the people, and he tells them, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth, the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he tells them some more commandments, but he tells them these two first. He tells them, do not serve any other gods, and also do not make any idols or any images that would represent me in any other way than I really am. Don't try to make me like anything. Don't try to make anything from heaven above or earth beneath or under the water. Don't make an idol and don't worship it because I'm a jealous God and I want you to worship me for who I am. And so they listen. They hear Moses and they're okay with that. It sounds good. And then God calls Moses to go back up the mountain and he's taken him up there so he can get the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone And he can hear some instructions about how to conduct the tabernacle, which is where the people will experience God and worship him. And so he's up there, and it's been 40 days, okay, 40 days since they've heard these commandments, 40 days since they've been told not to worship any other gods, not to form God in their own image and create an idol or any of this stuff. They've just experienced the Passover, all of this. Here's the Israelites' response. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who's the brother of Moses, he's the leader right now, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So 40 days, Moses has been gone. Um, They've experienced God previously in a a cloud of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night, and he is gone. And so they're automatically assuming after 40 days Moses is gone. He's probably dead. We don't know if he's coming back. God hasn't been here in 40 days. We want him here right now, and he's not coming. And so as Tom talked about last week, what are they showing? They're showing that they automatically think that God has forsaken them, that God doesn't care about them. He doesn't want to come back. They don't know if he's going to come back because he's not there when they want him to be there. He's not answering their prayers when they, the way they want him to. He's not meeting their expectations. And so their faith is totally dependent on what they can see and what they can feel and what they can touch and the way that they want it to look. And so they come to Aaron, the leader, and they say, Aaron, we need you to make us a God. We need you to make us an idol, something we can worship that will make us feel better, more comfortable, that will give us that satisfaction that we need right now. And so Aaron, as we'll see, being a people pleaser and not having much courage, he He says to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Aaron's probably hoping here that the people were going to just say, "Uh, no, we're not going to give you our gold, and then maybe forget about it, and hopefully Moses comes back and they forget about the whole idol thing. But the people don't. They give them even their most precious possession so that they can create this God in their own image the way they want him to look. And so Aaron received the gold from their hands and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made the proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Aaron takes all this gold, he melts it down, and he probably is 
places it around a wooden image of a calf, and they have this idol. And then the word here, gods, can also be translated as God. So what the people are saying here is, these are your gods, or this is your God that has brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're recalling what has just happened. And then Aaron makes a strange proclamation and says, tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to have a feast to the Lord. And I think when we first initially read this passage, we're like, okay, these people have just become idol worshipers, um, which they have, but we think that what they're doing is denying God Jehovah. I don't think they are. It's not like they're, they're believing in the true God, and then all of a sudden they decide today that they're all going to become Buddhists or Hindus and worship a statue. What they're doing is they're taking God, who they think doesn't care about him and isn't around and isn't there they want him, the way that they want him to be, isn't meeting their expectations. They're taking him and they're forming him the way they want him to look. They want him to be there now. They want him to suit their desires, to justify their lifestyle. And so they take God and they make him the way they want him to look. And then they worship him. They worship the Lord, as it says. They recognize that this is the God that's brought them out of Egypt. So they're taking God and they're making him and creating him to look like someone he's not. This is their sin. This is what they're doing. They're not denying God altogether. They're just making him look like someone he's not. They're taking the truth of God and they're turning it into a lie. They're taking the majesty of God and they're defiling it. They're taking God who is invisible and trying to make him visible. God who is spiritual and trying to make him physical. They're taking God who fills all space and it's impossible for him to forsake you because he is everywhere. And they're trying to make him into this golden calf that makes them feel better. That is there when they want him to be. That's the way he looks. Doesn't ask him to do anything too hard. That's what they're doing. That's their response. And so the question is, is do we do the same thing? Because we don't, most of us, probably don't take our gold earrings and, you know, burn them down and put them around a golden calf and then worship it at home. We probably don't have any idols, maybe, physically. But do we not take God, take him, and make him into the image that's most comfortable for us? Do we not take God, even amidst who he says he is in Scripture, and create him to fit our own desires and justify our own life? Because for some reason, we have this innate sinful nature where we want to control God. I think we do. I know I do. I think that a lot of us probably have said, maybe not out loud, but sometimes in our heart, that my God that I've created doesn't care if I don't tithe 10%. My God doesn't care if I'm not involved in church community, even though he says it. My God doesn't care if work is more important than my family. My God does not care that I don't really love my neighbor that much, especially the people that are inconvenient. My God doesn't care that much if I never share my faith. My God doesn't care that much if I struggle with the same sin over and over and over again and I never repent of it. And so what we do and what I do is we take God for who he is and who he says he is and who Jesus tells us he is, and we form him to look like someone he's not. We form him to look like someone that suits our desires and justifies our life and makes us more comfortable and meets the expectations that we want. And this is a grave sin against God. 
And we see God's reaction here. We see his response. Why? Because he has just told us, he's told the Israelites, don't do this. Don't worship another God and don't try to make me look like something I'm not. You can't put me in an image. You can't confine me to your box. You can't make me the way you want me to look. And so God is not okay with this. He's not okay when we don't listen to his word. He's not okay when we make him look like someone he's not. And he's not okay when we worship him for who he's not truly. Because God desires your worship. And what you worship is what you care about most. Every single one of us. What we care about most is what we worship. And God is so hurt when it's not him. When we don't worship him most and we don't care about him most because you're his image. And he wants his images to be defined by him. And we're defined by what we worship, right? And what we care about most. And that is why it's so grave. You're his image. He wants you to worship him and be defined by who he truly is. So God's response here to this whole ordeal In Exodus 32, 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So God sees this and he says, listen, Moses, this is a stiff-necked people, meaning this is a people that is unwilling to bend to me, is unwilling to bend to who I truly am. They just showed their true colors. They're trying to make me look like someone I'm not and worship me when that's not me. They're stiff-necked. They're unwilling to bend. And so, Moses, I'm going to consume them. I'm going to destroy all of them for this sin because this is a severe crime against me. And so what he's doing here is he's putting a test to Moses. Is Moses going to prove to be a mediator or an intercessor for the people? Because Moses is faced with a dilemma. He knows, and God says it, that he can't just destroy everyone because he's made a promise, he's made a covenant, which he will never break, to Abraham that he's going to make a great nation. And so he can't destroy everybody, but he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to make a great nation out of you because you're innocent. You didn't do this. You worship me for who I truly am. And so Moses is faced with this dilemma. Should he try to preserve the people, beg for the forgiveness of God, do whatever he needs to do, or is he going to say, all right, go ahead with that because Maybe he wants his own glory, his own exaltation, because he could be the father of God's nation. He could be the one that God does it through solely. So he's faced with this test of pride, and we see Moses' response. Even though they deserve judgment, they deserve this, he's going to step in for them. How often do we say they deserve what they get? How often do we look at people and say, well, They deserve what they get. I don't need to try to help them out. They deserve condemnation. And Moses is showing us differently. He's showing us that we're called to be intercessors, called to step in and mediate. And so he goes forward to God and he says this, but Moses implored to the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people 
whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And so Moses comes before God. He chooses not his own glory. He doesn't choose his own exaltation. And he says, God, you have promised this promise to Abraham. Please do not destroy and consume these people. Forgive them. Forgive them for what they've done. He implores the Lord and he begs for their forgiveness. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Then Moses is going to come back down to the mountain and see what's happened. He's going to see this whole ordeal and he's going to react. And it says, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the Ten Commandments. The tablets were written on both sides, on the front and back. They were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. So Moses does two things. He comes down and he has the tablets. He has the commandments, the testimony, the word of God that the people have totally rejected. He comes down, he sees what's happening and he gets angry and he breaks the tablets on the ground. He shatters them. He's revealing to the people, God has just told you this 40 days ago and you totally disobeyed it. And he's breaking it, signifying you just broke this commandment. And then he takes the calf and he destroys it. He throws it down and burns it up and makes them drink it in this whole ordeal. And he does it because he's showing them true faith, a true response to God is not to worship God for who he's not. It's to destroy all the idols we make of God. It's to destroy the idea that we create God to look like this, to fit our own desires. And so he models what it looks like, the correct response to cast them down and to destroy them. And so he does this, and he does this to, to show the true response to God. And then Moses is going to stand there and offer an opportunity to the people. He stands at the gate in front of all the people. There's 6,000 people there in the camp. And he said, who is, the, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. So he's standing there in front of all the people after they've just sinned and he's broken the tablets and he's tried to make them realize their sin and he showed them the proper response to destroy these idols. And he stands there and he says, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites come. They're from the same tribe of Moses. In other words, very, very few people come. Maybe 300 come to Moses at this response. He's looking for humility. He's looking for repentance. He's looking for the people to recognize, I can't believe we did that. I can't believe we were doing that just so soon after. We need to respond differently. We're going to come back to the Lord. And so few people come. And so we're going to move to a next part here that I wrestled with whether or not we should go to, because it's a hard uh, thing to swallow and to understand. But I think it's important, because I think what we're going to hear next you're not going to hear in Sunday school, and you maybe never have, but it's 
so crucial to understand who our God is. And when you really wrestle with it, you understand more of how majestic and amazing our God is, the blessing that he's given you. And it should call you to respond correctly. So in Exodus 32, after all this has happened, this is what Moses says. He said to them, he's talking to the Levites, he says, the Lord God of Israel put your sword on each side of you and go to and from the gate to gate throughout the camp and kill and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So Moses comes to the Levites, the few hundred people that came back to God, and he tells them to put a sword on and start at one end of the camp and go to the other end, and whoever they see, they're to kill, and then come back. And at the end of it, half of the people are killed. All the people that didn't come back to God, they're all guilty, they're all deserving of death, but only 3,000 were killed. And, And then Moses says this really awkward statement when we read it, you have done this so that the blessing of God might be bestowed upon you this day. What in the world is going on? What is God trying to show? What is God trying to prove? What is Moses trying to to reveal? And I think what he's revealing is who our God is. Our God is a loving God and our God is a just God. And the thing is, is that we all deserve judgment, do we not? We all deserve judgment for our sin We all deserve judgment for creating God to be someone he's not. We deserve this. And yet God has chosen some, though undeserving, though doing nothing in and of themselves to come back to God, to prove their worth to God, to be good enough for God. He has chosen some to bestow a blessing upon. And that blessing has been bestowed upon you the opportunity to hear his message of salvation, the opportunity to respond to it, and the Holy Spirit that has enabled you to do so. He has given you a blessing that so many have never received. And he's done it so that you can respond to him correctly. That some have been chosen, some have been given mercy, even though they don't deserve it. Even though we deny God and we create him to look the way we want him to look. And he's showing us who he is and how majestic and how gracious he is and merciful. And our response to him, he wants to be correct. He wants to be like Moses. And so after this, Moses comes back to God and he's going to to beg for the people's forgiveness, and he's going to be a mediator for the people. And he says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book, that you have written. So Moses 
goes up to God after all of this, after God has bestowed this blessing, this mercy, this deliverance upon some, because we know that there's no chance. We know that God had directed who would be saved and who would not. And he's coming up to God and he's saying, God, will you please forgive these people for what they have done? They have erected this calf to to erect you in their own image and to worship you for someone you're not. And then they've rejected a call to come back to you. Will you forgive them for their sin? And then he says, if you won't, will you please take me out of your book? In other words, will you forsake me? Will you take me out of the book of life? Remove me from relationship with you. Moses, who is innocent, who has not done anything. Moses goes to God and he begs for their forgiveness. He offers his own life and even that God would forsake him so that his people, that the Israelites who are guilty, could be atoned for their sin. And he does this and it points us to our great mediator who we are to respond to. Jesus has come. We celebrated a week ago. He came, as we talked about, a lamb that was slain to fulfill the Passover, but he also came and he begged for our forgiveness. And then he offered his life for our life. And when he did so, he was forsaken by God. He was removed from fellowship with God for us so that we won't have to experience that, so that we won't have to experience God's wrath and his judgment. And he made an atonement for our sins. Moses couldn't fully do it, but Jesus did. And he did it for us. And God wants us to understand that he has chosen us and he has given us mercy and he has spared us amidst our sin. And he wants our proper response to be obedience when we understand the magnitude of his love. Jesus has done an amazing thing for us. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. And our response should be to worship God for who he truly is, not pick and choose who we want him to be, to not erect God to look like someone he's not, but to worship him as the great, true God of the word, the word of God and all that he says. And so that's the question this morning is, what do we create God to look like? How do we form him to look that he's not? What is our response to him? And then what character most most represents us? The Israelites, are we like them? Or are we like Moses? Wanting to intercede for others and responding to God when we realize that there's been a, a golden calf erected in our lives to toss it down and to destroy it. Because that is to be our response of this great blessing that has been bestowed upon us. So I want to end with this, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Paul tells us our response. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, this blessing, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, just as you have received Christ Jesus, this blessing, he has delivered you, he has chosen you, Will you not now walk in him, respond correctly, and worship the true God, remembering what you've been taught, and abounding in thanksgiving and praising God for how wonderful and gracious and merciful he has been to you? 
That is our call. That is our response. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that is often hard to wrestle with and heavy, but God, we thank you for that because we need that. God, you have bestowed a blessing upon us that is more than words. And so, God, we know that you desire our response to be worship and worship to you for who you really are. We are your image and you want us to be defined by you. And so, God, we pray this morning that myself and all of us here would wrestle with the things that we form you to look like that's not you. That we would wrestle through those things and we would work on those things. And God, that we would be in awe of the blessing that you have given us amidst our sin, amidst us not deserving it. You have given us Jesus, our great mediator. So God, we thank you for that amazing grace. We pray that we would worship you with our life and that our life would be defined by you, the true God. And we would remember what we were taught and praise you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.